Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. It's good to be with you. Uh, Brian, so well said. Thank you. That was, couldn't have said that better in a way. Um, And as I see it, I want you to know none of that was spin talk. Um, it's, it's no secret, we, we've been through challenging days uh, the last few years, and um, as have many congregations. Um, and it, 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 there's been grieving that we've experienced. Uh, we've had people we love leave us, and we haven't stopped having affection and love for them. Often it's, know how to, it's hard to know how to talk about it together. And I know speaking personally, it's only been recently, to be honest with you, I've felt uh, permission, probably from myself, uh, to grieve and lament. And I want you to know that you, we want to make sure that you feel that permission. Um, it's, it's what it means to be human. And um, I don't like spin. Um, because when you spend something, then you've got to keep it up. <laughs> and I think it's important that we're honest and truthful and we try to nurture that. But we also really do believe that, what, what, I want to echo what Brian said, I've, I've been deeply encouraged, specifically about this team. Um, I'm encouraged because I think this group of people really represents well our community, and I think that sense of like representation is really important for us. I've also just been encouraged because it's, it just has, I mean, this is subjective, but it's just felt and seemed like God has led this here. There were, there were 12 people that were nominated and said yes to the nomination, and I told Brian, I said, I want them all <laughs> on this team, and but we kind of knew that, plus the two of us, Brian and I, who serve as elders, that that would be 14, and that might be too many. And, uh, but the Lord really led in, uh, in, in kind of, I think, for our covenant members who've, who selected this team, and then just kind of affirming that um, with us. So we're very grateful for your voice, those of y'all who did, and those who've said yes to, to serving, and every one of you are already busy. So thank you. And, uh, and, and, and again, I just want to repeat, so I want to make sure you heard me, there's nothing wrong about grieving. And sometimes even in a community, there's times, there, there's an old Christian named Ignatius, and he used to write about consolation and desolation. And sometimes in the life of a father of Jesus, we have seasons of consolation, meaning we're consoled we're encouraged it feels like god is really present and moving and maybe in the group there's energy and thank god for those times and there's also seasons in our lives that feel like desolation feels more like it's desolate it feels like there's lower energy and i think like as westerners we often equate uh consolation is everything's good to quote the minions, everything is awesome. And we equate harder times, desolation is everything's bad. 
And I think that's a really big mistake. You certainly don't want to evaluate the life of Jesus that way. If you do, you're going to find yourself in a very odd place of what you think about him. So uh, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes. I shared this, all this with the worship team this morning. It says, when times are good, be happy. When times are hard, consider God has made one as well as the other. And I, I just want to say, speaking personally, like everything is not bad in my view in our community. I see the work and fingerprints of the Holy Spirit in this community all the time. And that's been true the entire past three years. It's often felt more like desolation than consolation. So it's just, it's okay to say that. But I believe God is present and is shaping us for a really good, fruitful future. Whatever that means, we will receive what comes from his hand. And so we see this team as a part of form his, what he's forming in us, and I'm very grateful for it. So we've been, for a long time, I don't remember when we started, uh, maybe in the spring, going through the Gospel of John uh, together as a community. It's, uh, John was Jesus' best friend, so he gives us amazing insights that no one else does. We've gone, th- almost finished the cha- eighth chapter, which is over a third of uh, the book. We're pausing till the end of the year on that. I wanted to let you know that. We're not, we're not setting John aside. Uh, we're going to come back to it first of the year. But as we're entering sort of a holiday season, we're going we're gonna to kind of shine some, the light on a f- some other things. Uh, not today. I'll get to today in a minute. But the next couple weeks, we're going to share together a- around the idea of gratitude and generosity. And those are two things that Thanksgiving and Christmas highlight in the culture already. So we're going to lean into that and just kind of come before the Lord and say, what would you have for us to, to learn, to practice, to grow in these two kind of first cousin traits, gratitude and generosity. Next Sunday, and Emily will say a little bit more about this, at the end we're having a, what we call Common Sunday where we, I, we don't preach a sermon, a singular person we have. We'll have a group of people up here that will be talking some about what God's been doing in their midst. And then after the service next week, we're going to share a meal together. I hope you can join us. It'll be at 1130. Emily, again, will give a little more logistics. But in the meal, we're going to have a time of expressing gratitude. And I think that'll be a really uh, rich time for us. I hope you can join. And then in... Beginning this, uh, to, to, so the week after Thanksgiving, we'll, we'll kind of highlight generosity. Uh, next week will be more gratitude. And then starting in December, uh, we'll kind of do Advent series. And we're going to focus on Christ, um, who is with us as our way, truth, and life. And there'll be, uh, won't just be me, uh, Brian and Debbie will be bringing God's Word to us as well during December. So I hope you'll join us for that. So today is part two of a, (laughs) supposed to be once a month, this is twice a month, uh, 
that we're doing uh, on the big theme is called Engaging the Issues of Culture and Community. And this, this series really emerged out of some of the things we've been through the last three years and tr- wrestling with how do we talk about some of this together. And so we chose a topic that is foundational in nature. It's like before we start tackling specific issues that are in the culture or in our lives or community that we that we want to let's build a little foundation so we chose a topic we're calling calling developing a christ-centered hermeneutic and there's the word that everybody goes hermen hermen what you know what is that so the way we're using the word it's simple meaning is just interpret We're using the word this way. How do we see, how do we look at the issues of life? Whether it's issues within our own self, because those are important. You have streams running through your inner life. You have thoughts and emotions and, and longings and desires. And probably for most of you, brokenness and fracturing that's taken place. How do we see those? How do we interpret them? How do we, what do we do with them? Um, how do we think about them? How do we go forward with them? Or how do we, in some cases, step aside from them or away from them? Or issues in the culture. I don't have to explain that very much. There are so many, it's too much to count. They're related in different ways. How do we see them? By what, what criteria do we use in seeing them? We all have been formed and shaped in different ways. We've grown up in a family, maybe in a, in a region, uh, in a church community perhaps for some of us, that has nurtured different ways of thinking about those issues. Some of those ways may be really healthy and good. Some of them, it's not necessarily a matter of good or bad. It's just how we've been nurtured to see them. How do we see them the way God does? That's a big question, isn't it? How do we learn to think about them? And then issues from one another. Uh, The last thing I've ever wanted is a church community where everybody thinks exactly the same way about everything. I mean, if that happens, okay, But you know what? That's not reality. It's just not. Uh, We came from different backgrounds. We have different thoughts. We're Westerners. We are very independent people. Uh, Not not, not all the world's... I mean, we all have stubborn souls. doesn't matter where you live. But there's cultures that nurture more communal ways of thinking and living If you don't believe that, talk to George about Fiddler on the Roof, and he will give you a really good uh, uh, kind of section of that movie that will help me see it. Um, But we tend to think of things, I have to have my own thoughts, and they have to be independent. I have to make sure no one colors wrongly the way I think. And And we're kind of fierce about that. I'm the same way grew up in this culture too. So what, what do we do with that when we're trying to do life together and the person next to us, maybe the person next to you right now, 
sees a big issue very differently than you do. And you both claim to follow Jesus. What do we do with that? Well, what we're saying, or, or maybe advocating, is that we start with Jesus. We believe he is the full revelation of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. And God's spirit and God's word, meaning the scriptures, all help us. And they point to Jesus. So we're saying that the bullseye of our lens is the word of God who became flesh and actually lived among us and, and lived his life teaching and modeling and then ultimately showing in demonstration on the cross what it means to see life in God's wisdom. And that leads us to where we are in this series. The wisdom of God. How do we use wisdom to help us see clearly? So we started that last week. And today, because uh, there's, I just, honestly, you start talking about wisdom and what it is and how it plays in our lives. Man, that was way more. I bet off way more than I can do. I mean, we, we need to spend now a year on it, to be fair. But we're not. So I've tried to comp compress it into two messages. And we're going to give this week a shot on that. The way of wisdom in the Christ-centered hermeneutic, if you want a theme. Wisdom's a vital piece of learning to look at the issues of our lives, our community, our neighbors, and our culture. Because we don't deal in a black and white world. We don't deal in a black and white self. We're complex. And wisdom's needed to know how to, how do I navigate the issues of life? Do I just go with what I've been taught? Do I go with the loudest voice in the culture? Do I go with my political party? Do I pick and choose some verses out of the Bible that reinforce what seems best to me and run with that without consulting all of the biblical witness? How do I do that? How do I get to places of wisdom? Not necessarily that I have confidence that I'm always going to land on the right answer. That's great if you do. Good luck with that. But that I'm actually growing and moving and walking in the ways of Christ in the way that I'm thinking about and processing that. And I'm doing that in community. I'm wrestling with the issues I'm wrestling with, with other like-minded people who are also following Jesus. That's the vision. There's more important things than being right. Now, we want to be right. Don't mishear that at all. There, there's nothing in that that would make me shrug and say, it's okay to be wrong. I'm just saying, always being right, I say this very cynically. Good luck with that. Um, life's very complex. And often, we run into this wall called reality. And we realize we're not quite have everything together as much as we thought. But we do want to be wise. And we want to grow in our knowledge and our wisdom of what's happening in our lives, in our neighbor's lives our culture we want to learn to see life 
as God sees it. That's, that's the aim. How can we see life as God sees it? And then how can we live with wisdom in that light? Does that make sense? That's wisdom. It's not just understanding. We talked a little bit about last week what wisdom is not. Wisdom is not just getting older. It, you don't get wisdom just because you're older. Sometimes you get more stupid as you get older in some ways. Wisdom doesn't come with life experiences. Sometimes we just respond with folly to the same life experience over and over. Now, getting older and having a lot of life experiences can really help. And, and it should make us wise. But it doesn't automatically. And so that's one misnomer. Uh, wisdom is also not this kind of passive resignation to fate. Sometimes we interpret that as wisdom. This person is just like, oh, I don't even care if I care. That's not wisdom. Wisdom, God is not that way. He's a very passionate God. And he cares deeply about the world he has made and the people living in it. Wisdom's going to reflect that. Um, wisdom is not this stoic kind of resignation. Now, there may be some like settledness that comes with a wise person. They don't, as we get wiser, we, we realize freaking out doesn't really help us much. <laughs> so we learn not to do that. So it has some of the traits but we can equate wisdom as like, I don't really have to do anything. I'll just have happy or good thoughts. And I'm, people will see me as wise. Wisdom is very active. It engages life. Last week, we heard a prayer that I want to repeat. It's from the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossia. And it does a good job for our purposes because it tethers with the wisdom of God, with Christ. Here it is. Paul wrote, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea, that was a neighboring community, and for all who've not met me personally. My goal in his prayer is that they may be encouraged in heart. You know what it means to be encouraged? It means to be strengthened in heart. It doesn't mean just happy thoughts. It means to have courage in the heart. Resolve, firmness, and united in love. Not united in we all think the same about all the issues or that we have no differences, but united in love. We've made a decision as a community that we're going to be a loving community. We're not going to put each other on trial when we hear something different. We're going to lean in and learn and ask questions. That's what love does, among other things. We're going to be sacrificial. When we have needs in the community, we want to be loving toward those needs. And at times, those, as we get into generosity, we have needs that is going to call us to sacrifice to give up some of our abundance in order to help someone in the community that has lack. That's what love does. And then Paul says, I'm praying that they'll have the full riches of complete 
understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God. Now, as a reminder, mystery doesn't mean cloaked or hidden. It means it, it has been cloaked or hidden, but it's now coming into view. When Paul uses mystery, that's how he's using it. The mystery of God is no longer a mystery, although it will remain a mystery for many and does. But he says, namely, what? You see it? What's the mystery of God? It's Jesus. Jesus is now available. Jesus came saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's available for anyone who can stand it, who, who will take it, who will receive it, and, and learn to live in its ways, train in its truths, in its life. That's the mystery of God. In whom are hidden. The word here means embedded. In Jesus are embedded. And then I want you to hear what he says here. All the treasures of what? Wisdom and knowledge. That's why we believe a Christ-centered lens for your life is the right one. In Christ are embedded all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Man, right in that prayer, Paul just plops down in a, <laughs> a really dense theological statement. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So my question is, if Jesus isn't our life hermeneutic, what in the world is? He's the one the writer of Hebrews said, fix your eyes on Jesus. So that is our quest. So we're going to, another distinguishment we made last week that we introduced is we distinguished between what we call, and the scripture refers to as worldly wisdom and the wisdom of God. So as we think about wisdom, and this is really our point today, is this thinking about wisdom of the world and wisdom of God. And those two wisdoms are going to be packed in our text today with contrast. And we're going to look at a text that's in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, verses 18 to 31. So it'll be up here. You can use your Bibles or your phones or whatever your Bible's on if you prefer that. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. Here we go. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. I mean, that's a big contrast. Folly, the power of God. Perishing, being saved already. We see contrast. For, he says, it's been written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. This is God's voice. I will invalidate the understanding of the intelligent. So Paul is going to ask some rhetorical questions. Where is the wise person? Where's the scribe? Where's the skillful debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world through its wisdom did not know him. You can read Romans 1 if you want more on that. God was pleased through the wisdom of what was preached 
to save those who are perishing. The Jews are the ones believing, sorry. The Jews demand signs. Greeks demand wisdom. So he's presenting everyone in two different categories. That was how his culture saw the world. He grew up in Jewish community, and if you were Jewish, there were Jews, and then there's everybody else. That's how they saw the world. To the Jews, he's an obstacle. Jesus is an obstacle. To the Gentiles, everybody else, he's foolish. But to the called ones, he says, the ones whom God has spoken and drawn and invited in, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, he's the power of God. And he's the, what? Wisdom of God. He, he personifies the wisdom of God. He embodies it. He's carrying it around with him. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. It's a kind of fun play on words there. And then Paul says, brothers and sisters, consider. He wants them to apply this to their own lives. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise in the world. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of high social standing. But God has selected the foolish of the world to humiliate the wise. God's chosen the weak of the world to humiliate the strong. And God has selected the, quote, insignificant, which is probably how most of you felt in high school and middle school. I did. Of the world and the despised that which is not to render ineffective that which is, quote, is, is, the cool cats, the ones who belong in the way of worldly wisdom, so that no one will be able to boast. You might circle that word, boast. It's really important for Paul's argument. No one will boast in their flesh before God. It is from God you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. So I want to just repeat, when Paul's saying he's come for us wisdom from God, he's saying wisdom is walking around in a person. He's not just there to teach us wise concepts. He wants us to see that wisdom has become with us. It's become flesh. It's incarnate. And that's, that's important because it's addressing us as human beings. Not just minds. We're not just gathering wise information. He wants to reach into the way we're living. He wants to reach into all the parts of our person, our feelings, our, our thoughts, our brokenness, our past. Like, this is important to understand. Wisdom is wrapped up in Jesus. He's not just sending documents about wisdom. He's given us a person. Now, we have documents too, and thank God, we're reading it now. <laughs> we wouldn't know much about Jesus or maybe anything without the documents, right? But we have to get to the nature of wisdom. It walked among us. It lives now among us through the Holy Spirit. 
So it's from him that you are in Christ who's become for us wisdom from God and righteousness, holiness, and deliverance. And it's been written. There's this word again. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So before we dive headlong, we've got to ask uh, what's going on that Paul's making this argument. What is he addressing? Well, Paul's addressing a problem in the Corinthian church. And matter of fact, the Corinthian church had all kinds of problems. <laughs> Read First and Second Corinthians, you're going to see a mess all over the place. And he's addressing one. And I forgot my Bible, so I'm going to have to come get one. I want you to, I want to, I want you to see, thanks Emily, I want you to see, I'm going to read a few verses that will give us the context. So first chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. Let's look at that one. What translation have I got? Okay, that works. All right, listen to this. Paul is, is starting the letter, and he says, I appeal, to, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus, that you agree with one another in what you say, and there'll be no divisions among you, but that you may be un perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. And another, I follow Cephas. That's Peter, by the way. Still another, I follow Christ. And Paul's like, what? Okay, let's look at another verse. Um, chapter 3, verse 21. You're going to basically hear very similar things. 321. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or the present or the future. They're all yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. One more, just jump a few verses forward to chapter 4, verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what is written. It's a good principle right there. Don't go beyond what is written. Then you'll not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. See, are you getting a little picture of what's going on? So these really, this community has been touched and influenced by some really great leaders. Not just Paul, but Apollos. Apollos is a stud. You can look at Acts, I think, 18 and 19. And I think we know who Peter was. And Corinth has had the privilege of having uh, them in their midst. And all of these guys are different in personality, I imagine. In perspectives, perhaps, on some things. I mean, Paul definitely... And Peter, very different in the way they kind of have dialogued with the big issue of the day, which was the Jew and Gentile conflict. They wrestled over it to the point where Paul had to confront Peter publicly in Corinth. If I'm not, or was it Galatia? It was Galatia, I believe. So these leaders aren't clones of one another. They're different. So what's, what's, what's happened in the community? People are starting to party up around them. 
You know, some people really connect with Paul's personality. Some people really like Apollos. I imagine Apollos is a little softer than both of those guys. And then some people really like Peter. And Paul is saying, he could have just said, I got some advice for you. Are you ready? Stop it. (laughs) He could have just said that, stop it. And that is what he's saying. But he says, says more. He says this boasting about, from, about human leaders needs to end. And he gives more information. I'm not going to read it, but you can read chapter 3, verses 5 to 9, and you're going to see that envy is a big part of what's happening in the community and ambition. And that makes sense to us. Well, not that we ever struggle with envy or selfish ambition. I mean, Paul is saying, you guys are human beings and you're still broken. And so it's normal for you to like rally around the ones you like best. And he says that, I want you to know that's being driven by envy. Uh, Let's look at four of the first two verses and then we'll move on from context. But this is important. Four, one to two. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ. And as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Remember what he means with mystery. Now it is required, he says in verse 2 of chapter 4, that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. He's like, look, me, Paulos, Peter, whoever else you want to add in there, we're servants. We're, we're, We're laborers for Jesus. And we're not more than that. We're not less than that. We're not more than that. We serve him. This movement, this community, it's not about us. It's not about us getting what we want. It's not about bullying people. It's about what does Jesus want from us? And how do we discern that as a community? You know, as as I've reflected on my own faith journey, it's, it's not been hard to identify like a handful of men and women whose voice has been really weighty in my life. It's been really significant. And I bet many of you would also be able to do that pretty easily. One of the things I, as I've reflected just through the years, there's been, there was two men especially in my life that at key points in my life, one in my 20s, one in my 40s, their, their teaching came really dense in my life. And I, I really sort of placed myself you know, under their teaching and really learned from them and so grateful for both of them. As, I, as I've continued to reflect, one of them, the man that kind of entered my life in my 40s, one of the things that has been, I would say, his thumbprint on my life has had less to do with the content of his teaching, although that was there. It but had more to do with the way he refused to nurture a, quote, following around him. He just wouldn't let it happen. Anytime there was, and, and he had, any, to be honest, we had a very big following, but he was always quick to, in, in things that he said and the way he said it, with humility to always point to Jesus with his life. And, and that really has been, I hear that voice in my ear all the time. Because um, like all of us, I have ambition. And I, I, 
I saw the way of Jesus in his life in that way. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying it's not about us. It's not about any of us. Some of us plant. We start things. Some of us water. We nurture what gets planted. We all have a hand in this. Every one of you is part of this community. You have a hand in it. But it's not about us. It's about Jesus. That's what we're addressing. That's what Paul is addressing. So he's going to give this contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. Because there's confusion in the congregation. Do I go with Paul's wisdom? Do I go with Apollos' wisdom or Peter's wisdom? Paul says, stop making them your, their, your senseis. You can learn from them and place yourself under them, but it's not about them. It's about Christ. Then comes the surprise, and we'll start to land the plane from the surprise in the section. Paul ties his argument about who they're following to wisdom. And he proclaims that God's wisdom, and this is the point he's making, is really anchored in the cross of Jesus. Maddie, to quote you, it's about the cross. That's what he wants us to get. If we can look at Jesus, but then he wants us to like really focus in on Jesus. And he wants us to see the cross. And there's where his contrast is. Is in the cross. The foolishness of God, according to the world, is in the cross. That's where you see it most. And Paul says, it's, it's foolish to Jews, and it's foolish to Gentiles. Everybody else. <laughs> it's foolish to everybody. So why was it foolish to Jews? Why was the cross of Jesus foolish to them? Here's why. He's a crucified Messiah. Nobody wants a crucified Messiah. The whole idea of a Messiah is some charismatic, compelling, strong figure who comes in and conquers. Who gathers a group of people around them and leads them in victory over their oppressors through some kind of domination. That's what the Jews were waiting on. I mean, you look at their land that they're living in, which wasn't theirs at this time, like it's not been theirs for most of their history. The land they're living in, almost every nation around them, they've been at odds with. Like, which one do you want the Messiah to conquer? Well, let's start with Rome, and then we'll get all the rest. We don't like any of them. They're the Gentiles. They're dirty. That's what they were looking for, was that kind of Messiah. That wasn't Jesus' way. It wasn't his wisdom. For Jesus, his wisdom was not about conquest. It was not about revenge. It was about love. Even for the enemies, Jesus said, you have to love them. And you have to bless them. It wasn't about might. It was about meekness. Jesus 
is more at home with the people in the culture who have no power. Children, women, lepers, people who don't belong, Samaritans. He's more at home there than he is with the, quote, influencers in his culture. He's not trying to kiss up to the influencers. It wasn't about might for him. It wasn't about leveraging a strategic position for him. It was meekness. It wasn't lording over people or the culture. It was serving them. It wasn't displays of strength, but weakness. He wasn't motivated by a drive to crush the enemies. Here's the irony of it. His way of weakness, his way of meekness, actually crushed the enemies. And here we are 2,000 years later still finding grace in it. But this was not the wisdom of the world, the way he's coming at. It was very strange to people. It wasn't just strange to Jews. It was strange to Gentiles, everybody else. Why was it strange to them? Well, for some of the same reasons. He wants to follow a crucified king, for crying out loud. Nobody does that. But it was also strange to them because it just didn't fit. His way, the things he talked about, looked like a backwoods blue-collar hick from an obscure place who works with his hands. He's a tradesman, but he's not formally educated in the ways of philosophy. And they just didn't have a category for him. And so they made fun of him. And we have ancient art that be ticks depicts some of that. There's an old art with a cross with a donkey on it. And I won't quote exactly what it says, but it's not flattering. That's how kind of culturally they looked at him like, we've heard he was a nice guy, but who was? I mean, he's not a great thinker philosopher in their eyes. Although he was, they just couldn't see it. So he doesn't make sense. And then Paul says something more. In the second half, verses 25 to 31, he says, Now, this is foolish to Jews and Greeks, but now I want to talk about you. You know what he says? You look just like him. You don't have a lot of influence. You're not, very, you're, you're not like cream of the crop in the world. Sorry to tell you this, that you're not very smart, you're not very influential as the world goes, you're really not significant, not many of you come from any kind of social standing or pedigree. He said, so like, here's the way God has done it. He's done it in a way that the world calls, well, that's just folly. He came from an obscure place. Born from a teenager, it appeared, uh, in immorality, Im, yeah, immorality. He grew up very quietly and began teaching at age 30. And three years later, he's dead. And you're following that? What? 
And to the Gentiles, they were like, we don't see this. But then there were those people who heard his invitations. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And something stirred. There, there were people who didn't belong anywhere whom he reached out and healed. And they said, there's something more here. There were uneducated people whom he called and said, take up and follow. And all of a sudden, there's something going on that's deeper. You can't see it in the culture. If you're like you're looking for a good story, it takes a while for it even becomes visible. And that's the way God's done it. And, and Paul says, and you guys are examples of this. You really don't amount to a whole lot. Sorry to not flatter you, but you really don't. Not in the world. But what God is doing, you don't know it, but you're at the startup of a world revolution. These herky-jerky, stumbling Corinthian believers who, who are a mess, read Corinthians, are actually on the ground floor of now what we're participating in. I mean, look at the... Now, now I ask you, was that folly, the way God did it? Or was it wisdom? Huh. Here we are still. In the meantime, there's been all kinds of wisdom of the world kind of people who have come and they've gone. There's been all kinds of people, who, all kinds of nations that have rose up and been powerful and mighty and won military victories, and they've fallen. In the meantime, there's this obscure carpenter who begins this movement through weaknesses and insults and persecution and death. And he begins this movement out of these unimportant people who have changed the world, built hospitals and orphanages and schools, and stood up for people who don't have a voice and continue to do so. God's still doing it the same way he started it. With people like us, you know. He's still doing it. It's the not wise in the world. There's a lot more we could say about wisdom if we had time. I want to I close with a, a scripture out of Jeremiah. Because you know, I want you to, this verse in Jeremiah is what Paul is, is, is riffing off, is, is pairing with. He's quoting it. He says this in chapter 9 of Jeremiah. Don't let the wise man boast of his wisdom. Don't let the strong man boast of his strength. Don't let the rich boast of their riches. But let him who boasts boast of this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercise kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight. See, righteous and kindness and justice have prevailed. And they still keep prevailing. Even though when you pick up, well, I started to say when you pick up the paper, only three of you pick up the paper in the morning. When you pick up your phone in the morning or whatever you do and check the news, the headlines don't reflect that. It what we're doing looks like folly to the world. And sometimes, 
we don't do things as wise as we could. I mean, let's admit it. it you know, we're growing. But it just looks like we don't matter to the world. Um, it's the way God's always, he's always done it this way. He's not looking to leverage the culture so that we can have domination over the other side, whatever you label the other side as. He's using people who are apprentices of Jesus, adopted children of God, to confound what the world sees as wise. And it is a world revolution that we are a part of. And he tells Peter, the gates of hell can't stand up to it. Don't forget that. This is something that we're part of is no small potatoes, as I grew up hearing. It may look like it, and frequently does. And honestly, sometimes we even wonder, is it worth it? But God's folly, as Paul says, with his tongue in his cheek, is smarter than the best wisdom that Harvard can throw at us, or wherever. And God's weakness, a.k.a. Jesus in the cross, is stronger than the most powerful lineman in the NFL. I mean, it's not even close. So that's what we're part of. We're going to worship now. I, I think this text, whether you've been moved or not, that's, you know, this text is intended, I believe, to cause us to worship. To call us to worship. Uh, I think it has, it's, it needs to strike that response from us. That we are aware that we are a part of the folly of God. And I'm not trying to be cute with that phrase. It's just how we're seen. It's how Christ was seen. And we are part of something so big that if we could imagine very much of it, it would explode our heads. And I'm kind of glad we can't because I don't like getting my head exploded routinely. We are part of a kingdom. So let's worship. Let's worship in Christ who became sin for us on the cross. Christ who bore our folly, our self-centeredness, those things that were going on in Corinth, that, that was, that's us. Who came for that, and he said, let me show you how we're dealing with this. And it's going to be through death, cross. Because out of that, as you hopefully know, life has sprung up. That is now conquering the all that is in opposition to it. So let's worship.